0: Hey everybody, this is Daryl Cooper. You're listening to a special announcement from the Martyr Maid podcast. I've been doing this podcast for several years now. I never really thought I'd do it this long, I suppose. I didn't have a plan at the beginning. I think I probably have about 80 to 100 hours of material up in, in 20 episodes. The kind of podcasts that I do take a lot of work Especially for one person. I don't have research assistants. I don't have editors, obviously. And I don't have anyone helping with the back end, the website, sound, or business operations, such as they are. Uh, This is a one man show, plain and simple. And for years, I was using pretty much every free moment I had before work, during lunch at work, uh, waiting for meetings to start late into the night um, to work on these episodes. Well, recently, I made the plunge to start doing this full-time. I left behind a very secure job with good benefits and a solid retirement plan, and I am officially now out in the wild. And that means I'm going to be able to do a lot more things that than I've been able to do in the past, things I've wanted to do for a long time with this podcast But it also means that it's time to professionalize this operation a bit. Podcasting, it turns out, does not come with health insurance or a retirement plan. And so my future and the future of this podcast is now a matter of my relationship to all of you. And so to that end, here is the announcement. I am going to be moving over to the website Substack. The website will be... Martyr Martyrmade, dot Substack.com. And I'm going to be using that website as my one stop shop for podcasting and writing, as well as listener interaction. The regular Martyrmade podcast feed uh, will be available on all the normal platforms free of charge, same as always. That will never change. Uh, but I'm going to be doing a lot of subscribers only content at Substack. That content will actually also be available on your normal podcast apps. Substack has a way that they kind of work that. But there's going to be regular subscribers-only podcast episodes, as well as written content, essays and articles from myself and from some very carefully curated guest writers. The subscriber-only episodes will come in all shapes and sizes, some of them will be like this one. This is a little sample actually. Uh, you know, ba- some of them will be based on uh, built of segments that are based on notes that don't necessarily make it into a regular episode. You know, for every hour of content that makes it into an actual Martyrmaid made episode, the final product I probably have I don't know, 30, 40, 50, 100 sometimes pages of notes and written material and just other scribblings that ends up on the cutting room floor. And a lot of it's really great stuff that I would love to share with you guys and that I just can't quite figure out how to fit into the narrative or fit it into the time frame that I'm trying to meet. And so uh, this will be an opportunity to share some of that. I'll also have some commentary on current events and social issues, although I promise not to I promise not to dive into... Uh, <laughs> This sort of the daft political commentary that I know is a temptation for all of us. Um, I, I'm not going to get into any of that repetitive stuff. It, 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 it's it's hard for all of us not to do, and I'm not going to waste your time with that, I promise. But I'll, um, I'll also be answering listener questions, you know, uh, and we'll talk about it as we go, I suppose. If there's things that you want me to cover or talk about, then I can do that. Um if somebody wants to send me a book and have me read it and talk about it on the air, we can maybe do that. Maybe we'll do a book club. I really like that idea, actually. Maybe putting out a weekly episode about that week's assigned reading as we work through a book together and then talk about it in the comments section. That that might be something that we do after the schedule settles out a bit. Um, I've, also, I've also got several interviews already lined up, and these are also going to be very carefully curated. It's not going to be stuff that you're already hearing elsewhere. A lot of the people that I bring on, the writers and thinkers that I talk to, will be people you you probably haven't heard of, but that I think you probably should hear about. Some of them will be people that you have heard of, but I I won't clutter up your feed or ask for your time unless I think I've got something to add that you're not getting somewhere else. Subscribers will also get a discount on all Made t-shirts and other gear if you haven't seen the Martyrmaid t-shirts, go over to the website, Martyrmaid.com, and check them out. They're actually really cool. They don't just say Martyrmaid on them. Like, I really put some work into the design. And uh, I think you'll like them. And I've got some new stuff coming pretty soon. It's also going to be very cool. What else? Oh, subscribers to Substack will be able to comment on posts. That's the way they do that there. And uh, I'm going to be moving a lot of my online activity away from social media and into the Substack comments and other tools that they have. Um, sort of start using regular social media more for announcements and kind of promotion and uh, use Substack to really like, if I, if I, if I want to talk and interact, um, it'll be with my listeners. You know, there's enough of you out there now to satisfy my need for social interaction online and I'd rather just uh, I would rather spend most of my time with with people who know a little bit about what I'm about and, and what I've put out there and so if you'd like to help support the show it is just five dollars per month fifty dollars per year pretty standard uh, but anyone who signs up by october 31st of 2021 it's uh September 21st right now, basically anyone who signs up by the end of October will pay only $4 a month or $40 per year forever. That's not a first month or first year only offer. You'll pay the lower rate as long as you keep your subscription. I know the world's a crazy place right now. And for for many people, uh, even $4 a month or $40 a year is tough. I've been there back in the day. Trust me, I understand. And so I know not everyone can contribute. I know there is a mountain of amazing content available for free on the internet, and I even know that probably someone will pirate the subscriber-only episodes and post them somewhere that you can find them with a little bit of work. I understand all of these things, and yet, uh, nevertheless, if you can manage it without trouble, and if you have enjoyed this podcast up to now, I hope you will consider subscribing. If you do... And it's before October 31st. Again, don't forget to use the special offer link here in the show notes. You have to use that link to get the discount. I'll also put it on the website and on Twitter and Facebook. If you don't care about that $1 per month discount and you just want to contribute the full $5 or or whatever, uh, you can just head over to martyrmaid.substack.com and sign up there. So let's get this thing started. Here's just a few notes that uh, I left out of the episode on Nietzsche and Dostoevsky that uh, I figured I would share with you here. Let's get it started. Here we go. I'm content to die for my beliefs. So cut off my head and make me a martyr. The people will always remember it. God is a thought. God is an idea. It is a place. It is somewhere. Hell does exist. But its reference is to something that transcends all thinking. I ask you, Why we must tear ourselves apart for this small question of religion. Many of the greatest writers do their best work on characters that they dislike or disagree with. And we can think of a thousand stories where the villain is the most interesting part, right? Like the the Dark Knight with Joker or something. Milton's Satan in Paradise Lost is the most famous example. You know, there's just no getting around the fact that in that story, Satan is just obviously the most interesting and the coolest character. Well, Dostoevsky's famous for this. Now, very often villains emerge from aspects of our psychology that are invested with a ton of emotion because they're aspects of our psychology that we only keep in check by a persistent act of will. it takes it takes energy, persistent energy to keep those parts of ourselves that that the villains grow out of in check. Those repressed villains, Sitting in our heads somewhere, they're always arguing against our excuses for not letting them out of their cage to go out and deal with our lives, to deal with the world on their terms. And so they're always back there, arguing against our excuses to let them out. And and so we know how they think. We know what their arguments are. Before we ever sit down and try to write it, these are all already very well-developed characters in our in our minds. And since we're the same person, our villains. Our demons, those, those little demons on our shoulders, they know our arguments too. And we go back and forth, and sometimes we find ourselves thinking, at times, you know, this, this guy's voice in my head is, uh, is kind of evil, but he makes an interesting point. Dostoevsky was like a grandmaster at this. You know, he could write about atheists, radicals, nihilists, people whose ideas he rejected utterly, at least on the surface. And he could do it really convincingly because he knew that they had arguments that when he was being honest and not just shutting them out and refusing to take them seriously, he very often had trouble answering himself. He knew the most cutting arguments an atheist could make because he knew the questions that kept him up at night with anxiety as a Christian kept him up doubting his faith many nights. He knew how to portray a radical political fanatic because he used to run with those people. And he knew the rationalizations that he was giving himself at the time for taking up with those folks, despite really having totally contrary instincts himself. He knew how to portray a gambler not only as somebody who was greedy or addicted to the thrill, because he knew that the devils on our shoulders are too sophisticated to appeal just to our greed. And those devils, our demons, know our weaknesses. And play off them better than any salesman or interrogator ever could. One of the great things about Dostoevsky is that he never took any weapons out of the hands of his villains. You know, that's what an ideologue would do. If you ever trying to, if you if you ever plan to write anything, any fiction, don't ever make this mistake. This is how you write an ideological story, and and these are instantly recognizable. Don't disarm your villains. You know, a Christian writing a bad novel with an atheist character would blunt the atheist's best arguments, or he would avoid ones that the author really didn't have a great answer for. Not Dostoevsky. No, 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 no. He gives his villains the best arguments all the time. When Dostoevsky himself doesn't have a good response to their arguments, neither do the characters who represent his views in the novel. Maybe Dostoevsky's most famous scene in all of his books is the Grand Inquisitor scene in the Brothers Karamazov, and it's a perfect example of this. It's sort of a story within a story. In in the Brothers Karamazov, the scene is there's a young priest, and he's being told a story by his older, very clever, intellectual, atheist brother. The story that the older brother is telling to the younger priest brother takes place in spain during the inquisition and lo and behold jesus has come back to earth jesus christ has come back to earth during the inquisition and he's going around healing the sick and raising the dead once again and word starts to get around and crowds are forming and and people want to know who this great miracle worker is and then people start to realize jesus christ has come back well the grand inquisitor gets news of what is happening and he immediately has jesus arrested and thrown into his dungeon and then the Inquisitor comes to Jesus in his cell, demanding to know why he's returned to the world. And Dostoevsky gives the Inquisitor this incredible monologue where he's lecturing Jesus about how he had no right to return to the world to disrupt the work of the church after the way he left the first time. The Inquisitor rails against Jesus' decision To turn down the devil's temptations in the wilderness at the outset of his ministry. The temptation to rule mankind by giving them bread, or by dazzling them with mystery or miracle, or by holding them in fear, in order to get them to submit to your authority, gain their compliance, ultimately for their own good. He tells Jesus that mankind, just look around the world if you don't believe me, doesn't really want the burden of freedom. What man wants is certainty and safety and bread. And Jesus had the power to give them all those things, but he withheld them from him, from mankind. He withheld them. And he put too much burden upon us, asked too much of us, like throwing a bird, like a bird throwing its, its, its crippled hatchlings out of the nest and expecting them to fly because he knew we were broken. And therefore the church took up the responsibility that Christ refused. And now at this late point in the work, He had no right to come back and once again throw into confusion the people that he had already abandoned once. And so finally the Inquisitor says that Jesus will be burned as a heretic the following day. It's a magnificent scene, very powerful scene. And uh, so he's told that he's going to be burned and Jesus, who has said nothing at all throughout the entire story, not a single word, he's just been sitting serenely on the floor of his jail cell He doesn't get up and give some rousing response to all these claims that the Inquisitor is making. He just rises and goes up to the Inquisitor and gives him a kiss. And the Inquisitor sort of pauses for a moment and then walks over to the door and opens it and just tells him to go, go Jesus away and never come back again into this world. And Jesus departs. And so after the atheist brother is done with his story, Which, of course, is meant to tease and mock his younger priest brother. He kind of says, you know, well, what do you think about that? And the priest brother doesn't have anything to say about that. He's not as clever as his big brother. Dostoevsky didn't have anything really to say about it. And so the younger brother just goes up to his big brother and gives him a kiss. And the brother says, that's plagiarism. Which is a good way to end that little scene. My point, though. Is if you were to take a man like Nietzsche you know The atheist, the nihilist At least kind of on the surface of his philosophy If you were to take Dostoevsky and Nietzsche And put them in a room together you know, Lock them in a shipping container Put them up on a stage in front of a crowd of people In like a standard format debate And let them go at it over the existence of God Over the value of Christianity Of patriotism, the worthiness of common people uh, And just society in general And of all of our inherited values and conventions. Let him go at it. I don't think Dostoevsky would have a whole lot to answer Nietzsche with. I think Nietzsche would win that debate. In the eyes of an audience looking for clever comebacks and point by point dissections. I think he'd win it easily. But I think the mature Dostoevsky would sort of shake his head and say, Well, you know, good luck to you. Because... I know all these arguments. Trust me, I've made them myself. And I can't even tell you that you're wrong. I never really convinced myself that I was wrong. I can only tell you that this road does not go where you think it does and that you should really turn back. Dostoevsky and other 19th century existentialists like Pascal or Kierkegaard recognized many of the same things that Nietzsche did. They were working with the same social material and political material they were looking around a society whose fundamental values seemed to be washing out from underneath the foundations of everything that was built on top of it It was making everything built on top of it seem very unstable now Nietzsche's got his famous line he says if something seems wobbly go kick it over go kick it over if, it's, if it stays standing good for it it's got the strength to stay standing but if it's wobbly go kick it over And if it falls, well, it shouldn't be there. And Nietzsche kind of made a career out of that. The other three, they were were a little more reluctant. They realized there were a lot of things around that could be kicked over if you wanted to go give them a good kick. But maybe they worried that if you really, really thought about it and gave it enough time, that just about everything could be kicked over as long as you made your kick swift enough. Nietzsche was familiar with Pascal, Blaise Pascal, and he had a relationship to him similar to his relationship with Dostoevsky in many ways, to to their work. He never read Kierkegaard, unfortunately. That's one of the great tragedies of Nietzsche's madness, is that his friend, a friend of his, had recently written to him about Kierkegaard's work, and Nietzsche was preparing to start on it when he collapsed and went mad in Turin. Um, I would have loved to hear Nietzsche's thoughts about Soren Kierkegaard, especially coming on the heels of spending two years deeply immersed in Dostoevsky's work, but unfortunately that that didn't happen. All four of these thinkers, again, are generally known as existentialists, which is kind of a broad definition, especially once you get into the 20th century. Um, you might call Nietzsche a heroic existentialist in terms of how he approaches these problems, and the other three resigned existentialists. Uh, that's my own formulation or classification system. The professional philosophers probably have Actual terms of which I'm ignorant, but but that's okay. The latter three, Dostoevsky, Pascal, and Kierkegaard, these men were all explicitly Christians. But their Christianity was not easy for them. They did not wear it lightly. These men knew, just as Nietzsche knew, that we had entered into an age of relative values. That the certainties that had supported men and women in society In general, for centuries and centuries, that not only had they been relativized, but that they were never going to go back to the way they were. They knew that. They knew that in an environment like that, the arguments for nihilism were at least as powerful, maybe more powerful, than the arguments for meaning. Because they knew that all arguments for meaning have a bottom. They have a foundational assumption somewhere at the bottom that was not really arrived at logically and can't be defended by logic. And so the nihilist argument just has more room to run because there is no bottom. These men knew that we had entered an age when no one, at least no one who really allowed themselves to think about it, would ever be able to really believe in God in the same way, with the same certainty that people in the past had believed. Because once you know what doubt looks like, it's in your mind now. And it will always be in your mind, no matter how far in the back of your mind you bury it. And just its mere presence creates a polarity, creates a tension between your belief and your doubt that people in earlier ages with a different understanding of reality simply didn't have. It's like how they say an addict or an alcoholic is always an addict or an alcoholic, even if they've been sober for decades. And that's because you know once you're aware that there's just a pill you can take, or you say, you know, Figuratively speaking, there's a button you can push that just takes whatever anxiety or sadness or other bad things that are gnawing at you, you press that button, take that pill, and it just goes away. Once you know that, you can't unknow it. That button is always going to be out there as an option. And now you just have to live with that option being out there. In your moments of like, greatest anxiety or sorrow or, or panic or anything, knowing that there's a place out there you can just go push a button, go pop a pill, and it'll all be gone. And you have to live with that, staying away from that button because you know the consequences of pushing it. And that's how it is with doubt. And I don't just mean with religion, but with everything. And once you know that you can deconstruct any belief, any set of values, any moral code, any identity, If you hammer on it long enough, you know, you can break it down. And now you've got to go through your life as if these things still matter because you do have to do that. Well, how do you do that? The unphilosophical, direct men of action that Dostoevsky's Underground Man talked about, uh, you know, would say uh, it's easy. You just go do it. You know, maybe Jocko would say this, uh, although he's more philosophical than people probably think at first blush, but his answer would probably be, yeah, you just go, uh, you just go do it. You know, you guys are very clever, um, but you're kind of just playing games with words here. The truth is we've got a pretty good idea of what to do. It worked for your dad. It worked for your grandfather. It built this whole civilization that you see around you. In fact, we've been working on it for centuries and you're like, what, 30? Um, So maybe have a little humility. And uh, doubt your doubt a little bit. Be uncertain about your uncertainty and uh, look around and see what's working for other people and just go get to work. You know, no one likes to hear that part. Like, you're like, what, 30? We've been working on this for centuries. We all think that, you know, <laughs> once we turn 18 or 19 or shoot, when we're, even when we're in high school, we think we're having revelations that no one else has ever had. I know I, I was guilty of that. Uh, no one likes to hear that part, but pro- part of the process of becoming an adult is going from rolling your eyes at that speech to being the one giving it. Which is another way, again, of saying that growing up means gaining some humility. And the world is set up to force that upon us. The world is set up in a way to shove us through the stages of life in a way that forces us to either grow up or suffer. Which means be humbled or suffer. And since the world is stronger than we are, those who refuse to be humbled will eventually be humiliated. I talked about narcissism a lot in the last episode and how a major feature of the narcissistic personality is that it is often incapable of dealing with the world on its own terms, dealing with the world as an objective reality of its own. The narcissist deals in perceptions, and perceptions can be manipulated endlessly And narcissists become masters of manipulating perceptions, both their own and other people's. But the thing about the world is that it it is real. And it will eventually assert itself, whether or not we ignore it, and regardless of any perceptions that we or others have about it. I wanted to talk about a few more notes that I left off on the motif of the double. Dostoevsky remember had a book called The Double. It was uh, it was one of his very early books and it was a psychological novel that I compared to the films Black Swan by Darren Aronofsky and Fight Club by David Fincher. The book was written by Chuck Palahniuk. And those two films which are very good films although I saw Fight Club again recently. I hadn't seen it in a long time and I got to say it didn't didn't hold up quite as well as I remembered it, but it's still a good film. It's a well-made movie and Black Swan's also very good. It's a little weird. But but they're, but they're good movies, um, and there are going to be some spoilers in here for anybody who hasn't seen them. Um, but these two films have very similar premises. Very similar. Basically, you have a protagonist who is working a job which requires that they suppress all of their natural human impulses and subject themselves to a rigid external discipline. In Fight Club, the guy's a corporate bureaucrat. In Black Swan, the woman is an obsessively perfectionist ballerina. Both of the films end with a version of the protagonist's suicide. And they're both straightforward doppelganger stories where you have these repressive protagonists and in the, in the split-off parts of their repressive personalities manifest in the form of different characters in the film who befriend the protagonist at first, but then begin to threaten their autonomy over time. It's all very similar to Dostoevsky's treatment in The Double, as I'm sure someone like Chuck Palahniuk and Darren Aronofsky would have been aware, and I don't mean that they were ripping off Dostoevsky. This, this is not a, you know, not unless Dostoevsky was ripping off Gogol, who was ripping off ancient myths of quarreling brothers like Set and Osiris and Cain and Abel and Jacob and Esau and so on. That's not how things like this work. You know, some some motifs are the property of all mankind. They're wells that we go back to again and again to draw from because they never really run out. Well, another one, and again, there's going to be some spoilers here. Uh, that, that, That pulls this off very well Is the recent adaptation of Joker The one with Joaquin Phoenix playing the Joker Except instead of a Hallucinated doppelganger who's a whole separate Character you have Arthur Joaquin Phoenix's character Without the clown makeup in his regular life And you have Joker with the clown Makeup and once he's behind The makeup Joker is Capable of doing things that the Timid Arthur would never Allow himself to do I think the film, not that I have much to add to Todd Phillips' work here because it's a fantastic movie, but for me it could have been an even better rendition if instead of giving the Joker this brutally tragic childhood that drove him insane, they instead developed his violently pathological personality as something that emerged more naturally out of the symbolically vacant circumstances of modern life. Because that's not an abstract problem i'm talking about you know personalities like that have emerged in places like columbine and aurora and sandy hook and parkland there's another comic book movie uh logan which is actually it does a very good job with this as well although it's an x-men movie so obviously it handles the material in a manner appropriate to its setting and subject um but you know that's that's fine. You know, comic books are great for that. You know, myth- mythology is pretty cartoonish as well, and sometimes it's useful to throw aside subtlety and just cut out the distractions and make everything very direct and larger than life. That's what myths do. That's what comic books can do very well sometimes. Logan the movie takes place in the near future, and most of the X-Men, you know, the team of superhero mo- mutants are all dead. But Logan, the Wolverine for you non-nerds out there, Uh, And and don't worry, I'll tie up this thread in a minute Uh, Logan's still around It's like the year 2029 or 2039 or something All of his friends are gone Logan's still around And again for the non-nerds One of Logan's superpowers is that he can heal really, really fast Like if you stab him uh, The wound closes before the fight's even over Like that fast, right? Another one of his superpowers is that he's been enhanced By having his entire skeleton fused with this super strong metal That only exists in the comic book world At this point, there are really no supervillains left to fight. Um, That's all over with by the time the movie even starts. And so Logan is just hiding out and kind of brooding, consumed by the rage that was also almost one of his superpowers It used to fuel him in battle. It was the thing he was known for. He would go into these berserker rages. Now he's just being consumed by that rage, that rage he was famous for. But now it's just making them this, this hateful, miserable person and is slowly killing him his metal skeleton itself it turns out is also slowly poisoning him a side effect that is inhibiting his ability to heal from his wounds he tries to hide this just as he tries to hide his anger because he's taking care of an old man whom he blames for the predicament that they're in uh, but who's suffering from dementia so there's really no point in getting into it Anyway, as the movie gets gets going, he ends up having to protect this little girl who's very much like himself. And the villain that they send after him is a literal replica of himself. Literally played by the same actor and in the story is derived from a sample of Logan's DNA. And so it's his double. And in keeping with the theme, the double has all of his strengths but none of his weaknesses. You know, in his heyday, Wolverine again was notorious for this animal rage that made him unstoppable in a fight. But over time and experience, while he was with the X-Men, that rage was balanced out and somewhat inhibited as he came to care about other people. Well, the double has none of that, none of that compassion, only the pure, uninhibited rage. And so he's much more powerful than Logan, and even more so because his creators are injecting him with this serum that enhances his powers. And so you have this triple motif where the hero is being killed By the very things that make him strong The very things that made him who he is You know, his metal skeleton His animal rage And this clone who is a personification Of everything that Over the course of the X-Men comics Over the decades that they were being written Has kind of come to define the Wolverine character Everything that makes him Wolverine And not just some random guy Those things are now killing him Now the thing about all these stories All of them is that none of them are really Dostoevskian at all, but they are Nietzschean in important ways. They all end with a triumphant, although tragic, unification of the protagonists with the denied parts of themselves that are represented by the double, And the divided self comes back together in the climaxes of each of these stories. For Nietzsche, he talked about... He talked about the goal of merging the virtues of Apollo and Dionysus. Uh, Carl Jung would talk about integrating your shadow. Overcoming your limitations by joining with the parts of yourselves that you've locked away in order to get by in civilized day-to-day society. Black Swan is a little more esoteric than than the other ones, uh, but no less violent. The ballerina finally achieves her goal of performing a perfect rendition in the starring role of Swan Lake. And at the climax, she kills herself on stage by stabbing herself in the belly and cutting upward like like a seppuku wound, you know, sort of, uh, carving a vertical line up her belly. And throughout the film, her sexual repression was a major theme, like it was contrasted with the lighthearted sexuality of her double And so her vertical wound starting at her lower belly, I assume, is meant to evoke the vagina and to indicate that in her triumph, she had brought together her high-strung, sexless half with her easygoing, hypersexual twin. In Joker, the character's freedom and violence was only available to him when he was behind the mask in the form of his double, but then in the very final scene... He stomps a woman to death without the clown makeup and dances down the hall when he's finished. And in Logan, the Wolverine takes a massive dose of this serum that they've been giving to his clone and just lets his rage completely run free and goes on this final rampage against the enemy to save this little girl. These are all great movies, uh, in my opinion, uh, but their handling of the double motif is not Dostoevskian. Much of his... Early work flirts with the idea of merging with the rival or with the double, uh, but never really, except in his very weakest stories, does he present it as a satisfactory solution by itself. And in later books like Crime and Punishment, he would show why it was not, in his opinion, a solution at all. In Dostoevsky's later renderings, he would show how the radical individualist freedom championed by romantics like Nietzsche was essentially free of content. You know, you could... Save a life or take a life, as long as it was done without pretense and with a full heart. As long as the behavior was an expression of your uncorrupted will, you know, your true self. And Dostoevsky, though, had learned through bitter experience that we are way too good at fooling ourselves to rely on that as a consistent guide, and that's a major theme of his work. Early on in his book Notes from the Underground, Dostoevsky's narrator, The Underground Man, informs us, the readers, that he is very superstitious. He says that he is well-educated enough to know better than to be superstitious, and yet he is superstitious. I've always liked that little passage, uh, because although, unlike The Underground Man, I don't indulge my superstitions out of compulsion or spite, I I do do it, and I do it because I like it. I like the world... uh, That has, uh, you know, certain features. I I like the idea of a world where a rabbit's foot weighs in my favor when I play poker. It's just a fun world to live in. You know, although then, you know, I might have a rabbit's foot, but that advantage has to be weighted against the luck brought to my opponent by the locket that his mother gave him before she passed away. And Of course, both of our chances would have to be attenuated or amplified by exogenous factors like our birth month relative to the alignments of the planets or stars, or if one of us had Chinese food for lunch, whether or not the fortune cookie was auspicious. I don't care what Richard Dawkins says. I like the world this way. It's more fun. And since I have managed so far to navigate through my semi-magical version of reality without driving my car off a cliff or losing my life savings at roulette, I think I'll just go ahead and keep it up. Dostoevsky was also superstitious, and he did lose all his money at roulette many times, but gambling was only one domain in which Dostoevsky struggled with compulsion for most of his life, because compulsions usually do come in bundles. Another way to say that someone is a slave to compulsion is simply to say that the person cannot control himself a gambler or a drug addict in the grip of their compulsion will often describe feeling like they're on autopilot like they're just watching themselves borrow more money or walk into the casino or call the dealer like like there're two people and one is just watching it all happen well obsessive compulsive disorders have some of the markers of superstition and I'll bring these two threads together in a moment superstitions and obs- obsessive cons- compulsive disorder OCD Both entail taking what are, on the surface, irrational actions to establish a feeling of control for a person who otherwise might lack agency or at any rate feels tossed about by the world or controlled by it and by life. I knew a woman who had OCD symptoms all her life. She had grown up in a very, very conservative Muslim family, and as a female, in this family, exercised very little control over her own life. As a girl, as a young girl, she would chew her fingernails, you know, down all the way, just out of a nervous habit. Um, She would go through periods where she would pull her hairs out kind of thoughtlessly one by one, the way another girl might twirl her hair, and she would do it until she had patches of hair missing from her head. And usually she would only indulge one compulsion at a time. She would move from one to the other. It might be fingernails for a while. And then it would be the hair thing for a while. And then maybe she would move on to something else. Well, one day when she was an adult, this was during the time that I knew her. Uh, and this is a very intelligent, successful, educated person, to be clear. Perfectly well-educated enough to know better than to be superstitious, like the underground man. Well, one day she was looking at her phone or, I don't know, had a piece of paper with some writing on it. I can't remember, actually. And she started staring at the number three. And started to become disgusted by it. And she came to hate the number three. It wasn't the concept of the number three that she hated. She she wasn't superstitious about it in the sense that if a recipe called for three cups of flour, she'd have to put two or four cups instead. It was just the, the visual representation of it. Looking at the number three, she, she couldn't look at it. It was so ridiculous that I didn't take it seriously at first when she told me. And one time I kind of jokingly asked her if she also hated it when people drew birds in the manner of like a stick figure, you know, like a children's drawing where they kind of look like a horizontal number three, like a bird in the sky facing downward. And she got mortified and angry at me for bringing it up because now she couldn't unsee it and now she did hate them. It, It became an obsession. When she got text messages or email alerts on her phone, and she thought they might have come with a timestamp that ended or began with a three, she would have to check and see, and if they did, she would resend the message to herself with the threes edited out, and then she would delete the original. She could not focus if she knew there was a three sitting in her inbox. And she would excuse herself from meetings to go edit, resend, and delete these messages. Eventually, she realized I might have been responsible for this too, actually. Eventually, she realized that the number eight kind of resembled two threes facing each other. And so then eights became a problem as well. I'm not making this up. I'm not making any of this up. Like most of us, she had thousands and thousands of emails going back many years in her inbox. And so when she was stressed out and not doing anything else, she would go through her old spam folders, her old, you know, just her old inbox. And open them up and delete any threes they contained in the timestamp or anything else. And then resend the three list email back to herself. It was very strange. And she knew it was crazy. She's a very rational person. Overly rational in some ways. As hard as that might be to believe. Um, But here's the thing. It kind of worked. In the sense that it did what it was supposed to do. She wasn't chewing her fingers. And she wasn't pulling out strands of her hair. If she had been instead compulsively refreshing her Twitter feed instead of deleting threes from old emails for 45 minutes at a time, no one who looked at her from you know, 10 feet away would have noticed any difference, and no one would have thought it was weird. And it did work to discharge that anxiety that without an outlet could build into panic or, or else would have to be repressed until it made her sick. Her her anxiety obviously wasn't caused by the threes but her mind found a way to trick itself into thinking that it was so that she really did feel better and she could go about her day once she had taken care of her threes. And like I said she knew this was a crazy thing to do and for a while she would try really hard to stop doing it. And we would have discussions about it. She went to therapists and and they were useless because <laughs> therapists have seen a lot but they'd be like uh threes? You mean like the number three? What is it you don't like about them? And she didn't know what to say. She just, she'd say like, I don't know. They're just, yeah. And the therapist, you know, is like, yeah, well, okay. It looks like our time's about up. So next time you see the number three, I want you to take a few deep breaths and try to relax. Let me know how it goes. Have a great week. So she got nowhere. And eventually I suggested that Given the fact that she'd been doing some version of this since she was a kid, and since this version was really pretty innocuous, even if it was very strange, relatively speaking, it was innocuous and not so harmful, maybe she should just embrace it, at least for now. Solving the big underlying problem that caused her to chew her fingers and pull her hair out and delete threes ever since she was a little girl, that's a long-term project. And so in the meantime, maybe let's try to organize it a bit turn it into a routine rather than a compulsion and see how it goes and so she she's a very disciplined and organized person in most ways so she's good at rules and rule following so she set some rules like you know once per hour she could go and review and purge her text messages for x amount of minutes and when she had some time to herself she could spend a certain number of minutes purging old emails and she set these rules and it worked pretty well You know, like most of us with our cell phones, uh, occasionally she would look up and find that, oh, I've been mindlessly scrolling through emails, deleting threes and eights for the last 45 minutes. That would happen sometimes. But overall, it gave her a structured outlet for this plague of compulsive self-harm that she had been dealing with for most of her life. It, It gave her some measure of control over it. Another woman I knew, this was an older woman, close to 60, maybe in her early 60s, who had never been married and never really been in any long-term relationships, but, but, but really a nice woman, uh, unless you were at her house and you put a glass away in the wrong cupboard, or if you left a splash of water on the bathroom sink after you washed your hands. It wasn't just that she was a clean freak, uh, and she rarely had visitors, which as you can imagine was an ordeal because she was a tyrant, uh, but every single thing in the house had a specific place, a very specific position. And I mean down to the tiniest detail. She had to control everything in her environment. And after a while, a few months, and experiencing this a few times, I learned that uh, when she was six or seven years old, both of her parents had been killed in a plane crash. And it was like, oh, okay, that answers some questions. You know, At a very early age, she learned that the world is completely random, that anything can be taken from you at any time, you have no control over anything, really, no one is safe. She was still at the age where parents are near omnipotent and omnipresent, and then boom, no good story to tell about it, no human evil befell them, just a horrible, meaningless accident. Maybe someone responds to that by learning to just let things be, you know, go with the flow, but Uh, You know, some people are going to respond, especially when it happens that young, by creating a personality that becomes obsessed with trying to create some stability and is going to have a lot of trouble allowing anything into their lives that they can't control. When she would throw a fit because I put a glass away on the wrong shelf, it wasn't just some neurotic interpersonal thing like you need to control other people or impose upon them. You know, like that's not where they go. It wasn't like that. It was because this was the only way that she had learned to survive in the world without completely falling apart. You know, she had never really been in any serious relationships because that's bringing a person into your world that is really kind of a chaotic element. Well, all of this—the threes, the eights, this kind of thing—it's it's a type of superstition. You know, what, what what do we mean when we say that she feels this need getting stronger and more intolerable by the minute? delete a three that she knows is in her inbox to the point where she might excuse herself from a meeting an important meeting in an embarrassing way to go do it what could make her do that well there's a rising anxiety something in her that is sending the message that something bad is going to happen that's what anxiety is a message that something bad is going to happen unless she does the thing and, of course, the thing doesn't make any sense. You know, the anxiety's misplaced. She was someone who grew up with no control over her life down to the smallest details. You know, her family lived in the U.S., but the girls still had their marriages arranged for them. And so when she was angry or sad or afraid or felt that she was missing out on part of life or anything like that, her range of options to address those things herself were extremely narrow. Everything was under the control of other people. And a major component of compulsive disorders is a pathological need to establish some kind of control. Gamblers very often keep lucky charms of one kind or another, not only because gambling involves luck, but because very often gamblers are themselves under the control of compulsion. That's the reason you see billboards advertising hotline numbers for addicted gamblers when you drive through Indian reservations. But it's not only people who are gambling addicts, you know. um, like like people who are, who are serious addicts with a problem. I've played quite a bit of poker over the years. And when you're more experienced, you can watch inexperienced players. And, you know, they're not gambling addicts. They might just be at the casino for a weekend. And you watch them and realize that they don't really know why they're betting what they're betting or doing what they're doing at all. It, it, they're very emotional, even even in a small stakes game, you know, for money that is not meaningful to them. You'll see them win a hand, and afterward they can't even stack their chips because their hands are shaking so much because their adrenaline is just so high. And someone in that state is not making rational decisions. They are just along for the ride. A lucky charm gives an out of control person a slight illusion of impo- imposing some control over what's happening. And it doesn't make any sense, but threes and eights don't make sense, and and none of it makes sense. That's not what it is. There's a transference that's happening, and it really does actually work. Dostoevsky couldn't control his gambling, but he used superstition to derive a feeling of control. He was a better storyteller than most of us, obviously, and like many great storytellers, he saved the best ones for himself. A novelist of his caliber can do better than I can quit any time I want, right? Uh, Many times he had crawled back to his poor wife to tell her that he'd lost all their money at the tables, lost it again after swearing to her and God that last time was the final one. But then, once they were back on their feet, that voice would creep in, that storyteller, and start whispering to him that today was the day. Go back into the casino and give it another shot. Dostoevsky didn't have a rabbit's foot or a lucky coin. His superstition was more sophisticated than that. Although it's actually a very common one among gamblers, even if they don't elaborate it explicitly. This is one I've heard very often as well. It's this idea that the state you're in while you're playing will somehow impact the way the cards fall, something like that. You know, if you're loose and confident having a good time, you get good pocket cards and hit your flush draws. If you're sullen and distracted and pessimistic, the dealer throws you trash all night and even your good hands get cracked dostoevsky of course in his way put a sort of spiritual spin on it um it brings to mind this story that i heard joseph campbell tell one time it was a story from india so you probably heard it from heinrich zimmer i'm not sure but uh, this story takes place in the olden times and the people are all assembled there in india along the banks of the ganges river and the king asks is there anyone among the people with the power to make this river reverse its flow I think maybe there was a a threat of a flood or something. Who knows why ancient kings do things. I'm doing this from memory. In any case, uh, none of the priests or engineers step up to make the river reverse its flow. And people are just sort of looking around when, lo and behold, the water turns back and starts heading upstream. And so the king sends out his servants to find the great soul who performed this amazing miracle. And as it happened, it wasn't any high caste person who pulled it off but in fact was the lowest of the low. It was this old, used-up prostitute. And so the prostitute is brought before the king and interrogated as to to the source of her power. And she said that she had caused this miracle by means of her satyaraga, that is an act of truth or act of reality or being. Depends on how you translate the Sanskrit root sat. You'll see it used as being or existence or reality. Um usually in this context satyaraga is translated as act of truth and what was this act of truth the king asked and she replied well as you see i am a prostitute i have made my living in the gutter and yet i fawn over no man be he noble or slave if he has money to pay i perform my service to all with equal commitment for that is my dharma my duty according to my station now, there's an element of Nietzsche's amor fati, love of fate here, although uh, you know the Indian tradition is more resigned than celebratory. The point is this is a woman who had, who, who had fully embraced and was fully inhabiting her role, without resentment or pretension or anything else. She had no desire to be anywhere else or be anyone else. She was fully who and where she was. Now obviously in India there was a sociological and political context at play having to do with people embracing the duties and limitations of their assigned cast but dostoevsky's superstition was something like this and when you sit down to gamble if you are here and nowhere else fully present fully engaged and unencumbered by concerns outside the game so your spirit is sort of uncorrupted by desires and and greed and other things like that when you sit down. You almost merge with the moment in a way that causes the universe to tilt slightly in your direction. Well, how do you get to that place? Dostoevsky, I don't think, had heard of Zen, uh, as far as I know. I don't think he'd heard of microdosing or beta blockers, and so he did what most people do. He told himself a story. Dostoevsky was a very smart guy, again, uh, and he'd been struggling with this demon for a long time so that the voice in his head was not going to be able to come up with some ersatz tier magical thinking and think it was going to work the thing to know about demons i'm speaking metaphorically here if you prefer is that they don't have physical power over us they can't cut you or throw you off a cliff demons are masters of illusion and their great power is to take something that's good and turn it into evil That's what demons do. That's their power. When Dostoevsky was walking into the gambling den, his devil was not showing him visions of a life in great luxury. Dostoevsky grew up a Christian with devout tendencies. He would have seen that temptation for what it was a mile off. Now, the demon showed Dostoevsky his wife's face when he comes home and tells her that their money problems are finally over. And he's not gloating about it. He's not giving her the I told you so face. But admitting that really, she had really been right about this gambling thing all along. And from this day forward, no more gambling. That's it for him. And she's like, oh, husband, and he hasn't seen her so happy since their wedding day. These were the visions that the demon danced before Dostoevsky's eyes. And with those visions before him, he could search his heart and confirm that, yes, indeed, the only reason he was even thinking of gambling today was a pure, selfless desire to see the worry lifted from his wife's shoulders. He's practically an angel floating in on wings to the gambling table. So how could he lose? That was the trick he played on himself. Dostoevsky's clever, elaborate justifications for his pathological behaviors, as I talked about in the, in, in the last episode, you know, not only in his gambling but in other areas of life, provided much of the material for his early novels. And while his talent was showing through, as a talent like Dostoevsky's, will always find a way to show through, you get the sense that his pride, his, his unwillingness to look these weaknesses in the face, limited the value of those early works, at least relative to what came later. It was a pride that limited his self-awareness and made it impossible to really be honest about his characters, because that would have meant being honest about himself. A writer's characters are shards of himself. To be honest about them means being honest about yourself, and that's very hard to do. Pride destroys writers. And a writer less great than Dostoevsky might have been completely destroyed by the cleverness and monstrous proportion of his own pride. And pride is clever. Like all demons, it is clever, and it can take on a variety of disguises, including humility. Humility is one of pride's favorite disguises. You might have heard that joke about the rabbi, the businessman, and the worker. I think Zizek, Slavoj Zizek tells this joke occasionally. I'm sure he got it from somewhere else. Anyway, the rabbi stands before the people in the synagogue and beats his chest and tears his beard out saying, Oh God, I'm a worthless sinner. Worthless, I tell you. And then after he's finished berating himself, a rich businessman stands up and he tears his expensive shirt and punches himself in the chest and says, I'm nothing. All I think about is money. I'm I'm worth even less than nothing. And then this poor worker stands up and says, I too, as I stand before God, am worthless. And the rabbi and businessman kind of lean over to each other like, who does this nobody think he is standing up and saying he's worthless? The poor worker was humble. Actually humble in a way that mattered because he lived closer to the ground with less detachment. He did some things that were wrong. He failed to do some things that would have been right. And when he did those things, he saw the results of those poor choices in his own life. He's a poor worker. The other two were a step or two removed from their actions. You know, Maybe they had sinned, but, eh, you know, whoever's running this whole show seems to be pretty pleased with them because life is good. You know, they don't swing a hammer or hold a shovel for a living. They deal with people. And the feedback they get from the world isn't immediate or physical. It comes in the form of other people's reactions to them. Unlike the worker who builds a chair and knows if he's done a good job based on whether it collapses when he sits on it, their feedback is all mediated through the reactions of others. But people behave in different ways for their own various reasons. And so it's very easy to deceive ourselves regarding the reasons that things are or are not going our way. You know, Am I doing the right things? Well, people seem to be happy with you. But maybe that's only because they have an inflated sense of your status, because the popular guy likes you. And maybe they're actually jealous of you for that reason and would love to see you take a fall. So You better not disappoint the popular guy, but now you don't want to be seen as a suck-up because that would diminish you in his eyes. And Maybe the people are just pretending to like you because they want your approval. Or maybe it gets repetitive and crazy. I went through this in the episode, I know. But just go to an office party and listen to how people talk. This is 90% of what people talk about. When they're not talking, they're thinking about it. It's just an endless ticker tape of this nonsense running through their mind. And it's all just stories. It's all divorced from reality. When you start to pull too far away from base reality, and you're up in your head working over explanations of the recursive self-referential feedback you get from other people, you can get lost up there. You know how you can get a special edition DVD or Blu-ray? Um, and they would come with those director's commentaries that you could watch. If you've never actually watched one of them, uh, it's just what it sounds like. The movie plays and uh, instead of just the audio being normal, the audio is lowered and the director and sometimes one or more of the actors is talking over it as it goes on. You know, this is what we were thinking here in this scene. This is the effect we were going for there. This is what we had to do to get that shot. We had to do 12 takes of this scene because the actor kept farting, you know, whatever. Well, nowadays there's this whole genre Of YouTube videos that are kind of like that. People have channels where they watch YouTube videos and talk about them. And you don't watch the videos, you watch the person watching the videos and commenting on them. Apparently, they're very popular. Well, uh, this comedian, Bo Burnham, recently put out a special that has a bit that plays on this phenomenon. And it's really fantastic, but it's interesting here because it literally could have been a scene straight out of Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground. It's just freaking perfect. He starts out playing a song. Uh, Bo Burnham, he's he's a musician as well as a comedian. He does music as part of his comedy act. And so he plays a little parody song about unpaid interns and how much it sucks to be an unpaid intern. Just a little ditty. And then it cuts to him sitting at his computer, and now he's watching himself sing the song, and he's commenting on it, right? As if him singing the song is the YouTube video, And he's now at his computer commenting on it. And we're watching him comment on it. And it's pretty grounded. Just basic commentary. You know. Yeah I thought there was a lot of songs about working class labor exploitation. But not a lot about workers in the white collar creative field. So I thought it deserved some attention. But then all of a sudden the camera zooms out again. And now he's watching himself do the commentary that we just watched him do. And so. Again, the scene is he's sitting at his computer and on his monitor is the video of him watching the video of himself singing and commenting on it. And now he's going to comment on the video of him commenting on his song. And so he rolls with it like, okay, uh, here I am commenting on the song, I guess. I'm uh, trying to explain what the song means, but now he's not watching the song. He's watching himself. And so he says, you know, I'm really being pretty pretentious here. I mean, it's, it's, it's really just a silly song. And there's this thing, though, where you know, I need everybody to think that I'm smart. So I can't just write a song. I can never do that. It always have to have some kind of deeper meaning. And then it zooms out again. And now he's watching himself comment on himself, commenting on his song. And it keeps doing this and getting more and more abstract so that he's like, you know, the reason that I called myself pretentious wasn't that I really believed it. It was that I was worried that other people might think that. And so I figured I could insulate myself from criticism by saying it first it really derives from my insecurity of course and, you know I'm kind of doing it again here It's just disgusting really But I really have to give myself some credit to be fair Because at least I recognize these behaviors in myself Unlike a lot of people who just roll through life Totally unaware I'm really not doing it justice But it's a brilliant bit Because this is what a lot of thinking is This is what dominates a lot of people's mental space Much of their lives When you really pay attention to what's going through your mind Much of the time it's very recursive. And when you get caught up in this mental space, relatively immune from real world feedback, you can spin off in very strange directions. The direction that any given person spins off when they do get to spinning is determined by their particular neurotic tendencies and psychological needs. You know, when you're not in control of yourself, then your fate is determined by your weaknesses rather than by your strengths. When Dostoevsky lost control and got to spinning, he tended to careen off into moral pride. So that's it for now. Just a few notes that I had left out and wanted to share. I will be doing book reviews and commentary on some current events, as well as interviews and more outtakes from existing and future Martyrmaid episodes, sort of like this. Uh, And this feed will now, from now on, only be available by subscription on Substack. Again, the website is martyrmaid.substack.com. If you would like to be a part of that, or even if you don't, but you'd like to support the main Martyr Maid podcast, please sign up and help this podcaster escape the cities before God decides to consume them with fire. You can still donate on a one-off basis by using PayPal. The address is the same as my email address, martyrmaid at gmail.com, or by using Venmo. Uh, The information is on the website under the Donate tab. And I've also set up a P.O. box. So if you would like to send me anything physical, like postcards or gold bars or books or high explosives, the address is also on the website. And I'm kidding. Don't send any explosives, please. Anyway, that's enough for now. I will have more of this soon and some big news coming as well. Thanks for listening.